The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, Today's sermon title I put there, The Coming Messiah, as we are anticipating Christmas. Actually, it's going to be The Coming Messiah Part 1, because we'll look at The Coming Messiah for a few weeks here. Question. Why was Jesus born? Think about that. Answer that in your own mind. Why was Jesus born? Another way to ask the question is, why do we celebrate Christmas? Those are supposed to be synonymous in terms of the question, but many people in the world don't even associate the two. They celebrate Christmas and don't even think about Christ or Him being born. But for us as believers... They go together. Why was Jesus born? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Or another way to phrase the question, and again, answering in your own mind as you think it through, why did Jesus leave his eternal throne in heaven and then come down to be born here on earth 2,000 years ago? If you were asked to write down a little short answer to that, what would you say? Why was Jesus born? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why do we celebrate Christmas? What was the purpose of his coming? Why did he leave heaven to come down to earth? That's answered in actually a lot of different ways by different folks. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, you might say, well, Jesus came to earth, or Jesus was born to glorify the Father. And that's actually a very spiritual answer. And it's a legitimate answer. I think of the Christmas story in the early Gospels where Uh, glory to God in the highest. So the birth of the Messiah happened to glorify God. Another reason Jesus came into the world and was born was that he might reveal the Father and show us what God is like. That's what he told his disciples. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so a purpose for the Messiah coming was to reveal what God was like. Another reason that Jesus came into the world or was born 2,000 years ago was to seek and to save sinners. That's what he said. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save sinners. So why was Jesus born? Why did he come into the world to seek and to save sinners? Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, there's another answer. It's not just one, as you're picking up here. The Bible actually gives several reasons of why Jesus came into the world. Another one, Jesus said himself in John 18, as he was talking to Pontius Pilate, and he said, for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth, to reveal truth. That's why Jesus was born and came into the world. So these are all purposes and reasons of Christmas. This is what we celebrate. This is the meaning of it. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why was he born? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Another one, Jesus came into the world to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. The Gospels are clear on that. So there are many answers that question why did Jesus come into the world why was he born why did he leave heaven to come to earth what exactly are we celebrating during the Christmas season oh how we need a very clear biblical reminder as that great truth is just getting smothered out year after year during the holiday season when we forget the culture forgets the world forgets the true meaning of Christmas and so we have the truth to clarify that message and so That's one of our desires is to look to Scripture and just be reminded in a real simple way of 
why we're celebrating Christmas. And hopefully this is edifying for you and helps your family and helps you personally to think about the Christmas season in a meaningful way. So in light of that, let's go to uh, the coming Messiah, Genesis 3.15. I just want to look at one verse and emphasize one verse. I'll be referring to other verses as well, but I really want to camp out and expand the meaning of just one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, the very beginning of your Bible there, if you want to open up and follow along. I've got four points I want to talk about on Genesis 3.15, and this verse has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with the Messiah and why Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago to be born, the coming Messiah, Genesis 3.15. Just by way of reminder, Genesis 1 and 2 are the details of the creation, how God created the world and humanity in the first six days and rested on the seventh. And when God created the first two humans, Adam and Eve, he told Adam he had certain freedoms and liberties, but he also had a prohibition, something he should not do, shouldn't eat from a certain tree. In the day that he ate from that tree, if he did, he would be disobeying God. And as a result, his disobedience would result in death. In Genesis 2, that's what he said. When you disobey, the consequence will be death. That's the theme of the Bible. And death refers to one of three things always in Scripture. At its heart, death means separation. Death is separation from God, your Creator. And it can be manifest in one of three ways. It can be a physical separation when people literally expire and die and leave this life. So there's physical separation. There's also spiritual separation. You're separated from God if you don't know Him personally by virtue of your sin. And then you can be separated from God eternally. If you die in your sin with unforgiven sin, if you die not having embraced Jesus Christ the Savior, then you are separated from God for all eternity. So separation is probably the best definition of death in the Bible and manifest in those three ways. So Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things to bless humanity but gave them that one caution that if you disobey, you will surely die. And so then we enter Genesis chapter 3 and the very beginning, look at verse 1, the serpent, the serpent. So he's the main character, one of the main characters in Genesis chapter 3. That there is a snake. It's a real snake that God created. And Satan, uh, a fallen angel, the devil, is going to use this actual snake to further his causes, to tempt humans to sin, to try to undermine God's perfect plan. And that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. Satan was a part of it and successfully tempting them. He used a physical snake to do it. And then Adam and Eve tried to run from God because they felt guilt and shame for the first time in their life. They knew they had disobeyed and shamed their Creator and they tried to hide from God. That's what sinners do when they sin. They try to hide from the Creator. Guilt, shame, running, hiding. And that's what they tried to do. But God said He's a loving God. He's not just a judge and a holy God who must punish sin. He's also a gracious, saving God. And so he pursued sinners because that's what God do, does. He pursues sinners to try to rescue them and call them back. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save sinners. God is on a rescue mission. And so God went after Adam and Eve. They didn't come to God. God went after them. Shaking the bushes. Hey, Adam and Eve, are you in there? Kind of like hide and seek. Oh, there you are. And he found them and confronted them with their sin, but didn't leave it at that. He also provided grace for sinners. That's what God does. He's honest about sin, tells us the consequences, 
sometimes inflicts the consequences, but also gives grace or an opportunity for grace in the midst of judgment. So that's the same thing that happens in Genesis 3. And so basically God calls Adam and Eve to repentance, but he also gives consequences to all parties involved who sin from Satan himself, the snake, the actual physical snake, and then Adam and also Eve were all given consequences for their part in the first sin that basically uh, threw humanity into a cursed earth and sinful living from this point on. But in the midst of all the judgment and the wrath of God, there's a glorious promise. And the glorious promise is in Genesis 3.15. And really, the rest of the Bible, get this, the rest of the Bible is a commentary and on an unfolding of Genesis 3.15. It's amazing. So Genesis 3.15. So what I wanted to do in the, these messages on the coming Messiah leading up to Christmas is I wanted to just look at some of the key Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, the predictions of the birth of Christ, and really elaborate and flesh those out in a way that we typically aren't able to do. And that's what I wanted to do with Genesis 3.15. So by way of introduction, let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, let me read uh, in the context there, Genesis 3.13 and following. After they had sinned, Adam and Eve. Then God confronts Adam and Eve, and then uh, the Lord God called to the man in verse 9, Adam, where are you? And then in verse 12 or 13, the Lord God said to the woman, Eve, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've used that before. The devil made me do it. I'm sure we all do that at certain times. And then verse 14 of Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent. This is the actual snake, the beginning of verse 14. God is talking to a snake. That's weird. I didn't know snakes talk. I didn't either. But apparently this one for a time was able to. The Lord God said to the actual snake, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Literally, he is talking to a snake. So apparently before this curse, a snake very well may have uh, stood upright or walked or flew. We don't know, but the consequence was that now that snake, that animal that God had created, will now be on its belly forevermore. And that's what snakes do. They slither around in the dust as a result of the curse. This is real. This is historical. So after talking to the actual animal, the snake, then, he's, then he addresses Satan who is inside of the snake, verse 15. And that's our verse of the day we want to look at, verse 15. So for the context, know that God is talking to Satan who is inside of the snake. And God says, I will put enmity, I will put hostility, I will put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman. Probably referring to Eve here. You and Eve are going to be at odds with one another. And between your seed, your descendants, Satan, and her seed, her descendants, there will be hatred and hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. It's plural, the beginning of verse 15. Then in the middle of verse 15, God transitions to singular tense and, he, and singular masculine, and he says, He, he shall bruise you. Satan, he, Satan, a he, a man. A singular human man who is the offspring and seed of Eve. That's what he's talking about, verse 15. He will come. He shall bruise you on the head or he shall crush your head. Satan, that's how you kill a snake instantaneously as you crush its head. Whoever this he is. While he's crushing your head, Satan, you'll, you'll be able to hurt him. And you, Satan, shall bruise him 
on the heel. Try sometime, when you see a rattlesnake, go up and step on his head real fast. Well, no, don't try that. That's bad advice. Um, well, if you did, very possible that if, even if you did crush his head, you might get bit in the process in the heel, and that's what this is talking about. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Verse 16, then to the woman Eve, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Mothers, those of you out there who have had children, and you found it to be the most excruciating pain you've ever had in your life, and you wondered, why is this happening to me? It's right here, Genesis 3.16. It was fulfilling prophecy. See, not all fulfilled prophecy is a warm, fuzzy thing, right? Some fulfilled prophecies are very painful. This is one of them. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire or the desire to rule will be for your husband. That's not a good thing. You'll want to rule over your husband. You'll want to usurp the authority that belongs to your husband. Yet he will rule over you by God's design. That's marital conflict at the end of Genesis 3.16. Husbands and wives are going to have a hard time getting along in this life. That's another prophecy that is fulfilled every day around the world. So that's the context of this messianic verse. So let's look at the introduction regarding this verse in verse 15. Just a few things I want to say regarding Genesis 3.15 to put it in context to maybe help you and maybe some new thoughts that you haven't thought of before uh, on the introduction there. Genesis 1-50 through 50 is Hebrew narrative. It is not poetry. The entire book, keep in mind, Moses wrote Genesis and he didn't write it in English and he didn't write verse 1 and then he put in the beginning was the, and then he went to verse two. He didn't put numbers. He just wrote probably in Hebrew, however he was doing that, probably on some papyrus roll that was very long. There were no verse divisions. There were no chapter divisions. It was just one ongoing long run on sentence in terms of what it looked like. So that's how Moses wrote it. And by the way, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He wrote all of them the same in terms of their format and what they looked like. They're all narrative. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Written by the same author, Moses. Putting them together. So we need to understand that. Genesis 1-50 through 50 is Hebrew narrative. It is not poetry. Uh, B, there, Genesis 1-50 through 50 is history. It is not myth. The whole book of Genesis is history. It is historical. It is true. It actually happened. It's not mythical. It's not figurative. It's not allegorical. It's not symbolical. It's not to be overly spiritualized. It's history. Well, how do you know this? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, I don't want to go into that, but uh, just threw this in there for free. Point C. The syntax of the book of Genesis uses the wa consecutive. And you're like, what? Wa what? And let me tell you what a wa is. A wa is just simply a, a Hebrew letter. If you open up Psalm 119, go ahead and open your English Bible to Psalm 119. Well, I don't know Hebrew. Pastor Cliff, well, that's okay. In my English Bible, Psalm 119, before verses 1 through 8, it says Aleph, A-L-E-P-H, Aleph. Aleph. What in the world is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And in your Hebrew text, each verse begins with the letter Aleph in Hebrew. So it's an acrostic. And you can't see that in your English translation. It's a beautiful thing. So it's very poetic. It is artistic. Aleph. And then... In verse 9 in my English Bible, at the top it says Bet. looks like Beth, B-E-T-H, it's Bet. Olive, Bet. And then 9 through 16, 
every verse begins with the letter B or Bet in Hebrew, if you were reading Hebrew. So another acrostic. And, so, and it actually takes all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet as you thumb through Psalm 119, going through all the way to Tav at the end, 69 to 176. So if you wanted to know what a Vav is, W-A-W, if you're looking in your English Bible there, it's one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It goes uh, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Vav, verse 41, V-A-V, and in this English Bible, uh, but also it's translated or transliterated as W-A-W, pronounced different ways, but most commonly as a Wa, Wa, or Vav. Same thing. So going back to your notes there, uh, the syntax of Genesis, all 50 chapters, including Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 1 through 11, have this little feature called the Wa consecutive that is very important. And I'll tell you why in just a second. The Wa consecutive. Uh, let me tell you about the Wa a little more specifically. It is a Hebrew letter, but it is used in different ways in terms of grammar and syntax to help us understand things. In Genesis, as a Wa consecutive, the Wa, by the way, it looks kind of like uh, uh, the letter small i with a little hat on it going out to the left. So it's just a little letter. But a wa consecutive, it is a Hebrew letter. It is used as a prefix, so it's attached to the front of words in Hebrew. It is translated as a conjunction, but, and, then. It functions like an adverb. I know this is getting complicated. Then, adverb of time, many times. It's predominant in Hebrew historical narrative, that's key, that, quote, provides an element of sequence to past time narrative, end quote. So says a very respected Hebrew scholar, and he is correct. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, you have 31 verses, and you have the Wa consecutive, this little W-looking thing, attached to 55 different words in the context. And the whole point is whoever wrote it is telling us a story that is sequential. It's in order. It has to do with time. It is historical. It really happened. Things developed. One thing came before another thing. This is very specific. If you study Hebrew and know Hebrew, you know this. If you study Hebrew and know Hebrew, you can't ignore this when you're dealing with the biblical text. When was the last time when you heard somebody talking about the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, trying to tell you it wasn't historical, but it is mythological, that it is symbolic, that you don't take it literally? Did they talk about the Hebrew va consecutive? Probably not. You have to avoid it because that will undermine everything they have to say. They're not looking at the exegesis syntax and the grammar or exegesis of the passage when they're trying to dismiss the historical reality of the book of Genesis. So I just wanted to add that to kind of to your arsenal in understanding why it is so important to preserve the book of Genesis, especially the first three chapters, as history. It really happened this way. You mean, Pastor Cliff, you really believe there was a snake? Yes, I do. And I believe it was a real snake. You really believe that snake talked? I do. But snakes don't talk. I know they don't. This one did. Amazing, isn't it? Because it was empowered by Satan to do so and God allowed Satan to do that. God can do whatever He wants. So everything in Genesis is to be taken literally, historically, at face value, in the context, of course. There are figures of speech and so on, and we, we note those. So hopefully that helps you a little bit. Um, Vav. 
Vav. I remember the first time I, I did have to study Hebrew in seminary, and it was very difficult. The hardest class I ever took, the hardest language I've ever studied, next to Pig Latin. Um, and I, I had put in an entire year of Hebrew grammar, Hebrew exegesis, year goes by, and I still can't even get the alphabet down right. And so then I'm teaching at a Jewish Christian school during the summer and working with Jewish Christian kids, and we're doing camp, and there's this eight-year-old kid named Joel. He's a Hebrew Christian kid, and he's just got all these Hebrew words down and all that. And I said, Joel, you know the Hebrew alphabet? Oh, psh, of course I do, Mr. McManeth. And so he started telling, and I said, Joel, man, I, I can't get the Hebrew alphabet down, and I've taken seminary and everything. So, well, Mr. McManeth, then you need to learn uh, the Hebrew alphabet song. I said, oh, okay. And so Joel proceeded to teach me the Hebrew alphabet song, and it went something like this. Aleph, Beit, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Va, Zion, Va, see the Va, Va, the W thing? Va, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, Chet, Tet, Yod. And Joel, he did, he spit all over me. And I was like, is that, is that really necessary? Well, you have to, it's a guttural, Mr. McManus, you got to do that. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, thanks to Joel, the eight-year-old, I never forgot the Hebrew alphabet. Those seminary classes, they were worthless, the seminary classes. But anyway, <laughs> that's a true story. I am not exaggerating or elaborating. Going back to our introduction on Genesis. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. And in light of letter E, Moses wrote, Moses wrote Genesis, the thing, the whole thing, and nothing but the thing. Now, God gave this truth to Adam after he created Adam and Adam probably preserved this truth orally, and maybe he even wrote it down on a tablet or something because there's indications that he did. But this truth of how things began because Adam was an eyewitness was preserved by Adam and passed on to the generations until finally it was codified by Moses in 1400 B.C. So the truth was given, Genesis 3.15 and 4000 B.C., which means this verse was given by God to humanity over 6,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? About the coming Messiah. It was preserved in writing for us in 1400 B.C., which means this Bible verse in Genesis 3.15 is 3,400 years old. And it is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. It is absolutely amazing. And why it's such a beautiful thing is because when you think of Genesis 3, you think of bad news, darkness, fall, curse, sin, devil, yuck. And under all that is this glorious promise that really outshines it all in Genesis 3.15 of this promise of a saving Messiah who will come and undo all the bad and death and destruction that we see in the story. And the rest of the Bible is looking forward to this great saving Messiah. So let's go ahead and look at some of the details of Genesis 3.15 and practical implications for us. I came up with four points there just about this truth, this wonderful verse where God said to Satan, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman or you and Eve, and I'm going to put hatred and hostility forevermore between you, your seed, Satan, and your offspring and Eve's offspring and her descendants, whoever they would be. One of those descendants is going to be a man that will come and it's referred to as a he. He shall bruise you on the head. So four great truths that we can be reminded of regarding the meaning of Christmas. Let's look at those together. The first one out of this verse is the reality of the enemy of the coming Messiah. God has enemies. It's a good reminder. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You've got enemies. Some people don't like that thought. 
Some people are people pleasers. They can't stand the thought of somebody not liking them. By the way, that borders on idolatry, the fear of man. But if you're a Christian, you've got enemies. The moment you became a Christian, you just took on about four or five new enemies from Satan, sin, death, hell, the devil, the world. So the enemy of the coming Messiah is the devil. The word devil, by the way, it means slanderer. That's what Satan does. He slanders people. He slanders their reputation. He lies about them. And we know from Revelation that the devil lies about believers, Christians, to God. Like he tried to lie about Job, he lies about If you're a Christian, Satan lies about you. He knows you. Satan knows your name. He knows who you are. He lies about you to God. He's the slanderer, the categorizer, says Revelation 12. Other names of Satan be just Satan itself. Satan means adversary. He's your enemy. He's not your friend. He's also called Apollyon, which means he is the destroyer. He wants to destroy people. He's hell-bent on it. He's also called the dragon. He wants to devour people. He's called the lion. He is voracious and vicious and ferocious. A killer. So, the enemy, the coming Messiah, the devil, the serpent. Let's go ahead and look at Genesis 3.15. Uh, I already alluded to the fact that Satan or the serpent was introduced in chapter 3, verse 1, there as a real snake. And then at some point, Satan went inside of that snake. How do you know that? Well, you can get that from the entire context as we're reading that God is talking to more than just a snake. It seems he's talking to a personality that is real. And the fact is, if you look, go ahead and look in your Bible, look at Revelation. About the middle of the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. Uh, Revelation 12. Starting at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 7. There was war in heaven, Michael, the dragon and his angels waged war. Uh, and then verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. The great dragon. Who, well, who is the great dragon that is fighting one of God's great angels in Revelation 12, verse 9? Who is this dragon, the spiritual? He's fighting up in the spiritual heavenly places in the invisible worlds that we cannot see. Who is this dragon? He is the serpent of old. There it is. The serpent of old. The serpent from Genesis. John the Apostle is writing this. John was raised in the synagogue. John was raised studying, memorizing Hebrew Scriptures. John knew Genesis like the back of his hand. And so this is a direct reference to Genesis when John the Apostle says the dragon is the serpent of old. You know that one in Genesis chapter 3. That's who I'm talking about. He's the serpent of old, get this, who is called the devil and Satan explicitly. So that's why we know in Genesis 3, the serpent is a direct reference to Satan using this physical snake. The arch enemy of God. So go back to Genesis chapter 3. The enemy of the coming Messiah. And so the Lord God talks to Satan. Notice in verse 14 that he curses Satan. Cursed are you. Cursed are you. Satan is cursed. The snake is cursed. So is Satan cursed by God. It is significant to note that God doesn't curse Eve. He doesn't say cursed are you Eve. He doesn't say cursed are you Adam. He says cursed are you snake. Cursed are you serpent. Cursed are you Satan. And he also says cursed is the ground or the earth because of you Adam. So he doesn't curse Adam directly, but he does curse the earth in which Adam lives. 
So with this pronunciation, Satan is an eternal enemy of God himself. He is cursed. Okay, I want to take another pop quiz. Are you ready? And it was on uh, Satan, okay? So this is kind of Christianity Bible 101. So you answer quietly in your own head, or you can just write the answers down, and it's 1 through 10. I'm going to go real quick, and you either answer yes or no. You ready? This is on Satan. Just to make sure we're all on the same page. I don't want to assume anything about what we do know and don't know about Satan and what the Bible says, because I am routinely surprised as I interact sometimes with believers here and there of what they believe about Satan or what they know. And I'm thinking, wow, I thought this was really basic, but we can't make those assumptions. Here we go. Here's the Satan quiz. Just answers yes or no. Number one, is Satan the person? Number two, does God hate Satan? Number three, is there anything good about Satan? Number four, is Satan allegorical or mythical? In other words, is he not real? Number five, does Satan rule hell? Number six, does Satan send people to hell? Number seven, can Satan live in Christians and possess them? Number eight, are Christians exempt from Satan's torment and harassment? Number nine, does Satan know your thoughts? And number 10, can Satan be redeemed? And the answer to all of those was no. So if you got no on all 10, then see me afterwards about your door prize. 10 out of 10 on your quiz. If you got yes on some of those, then maybe uh, you need to follow up and we can talk or chat. And well, why did you say no on that one? So, um, but anyway, that covers a broad spectrum about what the biblical understanding of Satan and who this great enemy is of God that is showcased as a key figure in Genesis 3.15. So that is, I just want to introduce the enemy of the coming Messiah. Number two in Genesis 3.15, that is the nature of this coming Messiah. What is this Messiah going to be like? That's a debated issue. Was he just a man, a rabbi, a good man, a teacher? Was he more than that? Was he a demigod, a semi-god? A, he became a god, he worked his way to godhood, he, whatever. What was this Messiah? And who is this Messiah? Is he John the Baptist, Jeremiah? Is he Elijah reincarnated? Is he Moses reincarnated? Is he... Who in the world is this Messiah? So Scripture is clear in answering that question. The nature of the coming Messiah, he is the God-man. I'll just simply say that. He is the God-man. That simply means that this Messiah would be 100% God and 100% man. That's the, te the clear teaching of Scripture. And then the natural human come back to that is, wow, that doesn't even make sense. How is that possible? I don't know how that's possible other than that's what God said. That's what God did. And God does amazing, unbelievable miracles that kind of hurt my brain. But we do know that this promised coming Messiah that would be battling against Satan is the God-man. We know for sure he's going to be of hu a human origin because in verse 15 it says, as God's talking to Satan, Satan, I'm going to create hostility between you and Eve. Eve is a woman. Nothing special about Eve, just like any other woman or human. And there's going to be hostility between your seed or your descendants and the descendants of Eve. And then it goes immediately to he. One of the descendants will be a he. He will be masculine. He will be a man. He will come from the loins and the direct lineage of Eve who was a human. And if you go to Luke chapter 3, 
you can trace the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam and Eve. That is the bloodline of Jesus the Messiah as a human being. So Jesus was a 100% human being, a real human being. There are many people that deny that reality, but that is basic to biblical truth. Jesus was a 100% man. But Jesus was not always a 100% man. Jesus always existed. Jesus existed in eternity past. But Jesus did not always exist as a, as a man. Jesus became a man. Jesus has existed for eternity, but Jesus existed in eternity past as God. Deity with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And then Jesus came down to earth, the earth that he created, and took on humanity. He added 100% humanity to himself as deity, as the God, and he became the God-man. That has never been duplicated. It's never been replicated. It is a divine supernatural miracle beyond human comprehension and explanation. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. And so... This prophecy says that the Messiah is going to be a human being that will come through the loins of Eve. The reason this is so important is because some people want to overemphasize the deity of Jesus Christ or the godness of Jesus that they say, well, he wasn't really a man. He wasn't fully man because they think if you're truly a full 100% human being, then you are inherently sinful. And that is not true because Jesus was 100% man, but he was not sinful. He wasn't born in sin. He did not have a sin nature. He never committed a sin. He was a perfect human being. And to be a human being, you don't have to sin. Yeah, you do. No, you don't. Yeah, you do. No, you don't. How do I know that? Well, Adam existed as a human being before he sinned, right? And then when you and me, when you go to heaven, we won't be in sin. We won't have a sin nature. We will live for all eternity without sin. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus is the model of that. So Jesus, who was God, became a human being. He is the God-man. As a matter of fact, other prophecies we'll look at. Think of in Isaiah, it predicted the coming of the Messiah 700 years before he was born, and it gave him many names. And one of the names that the Messiah was going to be known as or called was Emmanuel. Now, do you remember anybody in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the stories of Jesus calling Jesus Emmanuel? Not really. It was son of David, rabbi, teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody's, for the most part, going around calling him Emmanuel, but his name shall be called Emmanuel, says the prophecy in Isaiah, which means God is with us. And literally, God came down from heaven, tabernacle, took on a human body and lived as a human among humans. So that's his name, Emmanuel, God with us. God became a man and lived in our midst. That's a title of Jesus more so than a name. It's a reality of his nature, of the incarnation, we call it as the God-man. So the clear teaching of the Bible is that the Messiah had to be the God-man. He had to be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Why is that? So that he could be the perfect substitute for sinners, the perfect substitute for you and for me. God, Jesus had to be 100% God so that he could be a sinless, perfect substitute when he died for me. You can't have a sinner die for a sinner. That does not atone for sins. The sacrifice has to be pristine, flawless, sinless, perfect. So he had to be God. Also, the Savior that died had to be God because he had to be a supernatural being. He had to be an infinite being. He had to die on behalf of all of humanity that would put their faith in him. That took more than just another human being, one for one. 
Then he had to raise himself from the dead and he had to conquer Satan and he had to have the rights to forgive sin. The Bible says in the Gospels that only God has the right to forgive sin. And Jesus, because he was God, had the right to forgive sin. And that's why Jesus could tell people at times, uh, woman, your faith has saved you or your sins are forgiven. And when he did that in the presence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they became irate and outraged and accused, outraged and accused him of being a blasphemer because they said only God, only Yahweh can forgive sins. Who do you think you are? Jesus declaring sins forgiven. Well, he was God in a body. He was God incarnate and therefore had inherent right and authority to declare a sinner forgiven of sin. So the Savior, the Messiah, had to be 100% God. And at the same time, the Savior had to be 100% humanity because he had to be a perfect substitute for you and me. He had to take on our very same nature, not our sin nature, but our human nature. And we know that about Jesus from the Gospels. He had a human body just like ours. Uh, The book of Isaiah says that if you saw Jesus in a crowd... You wouldn't necessarily say, oh, there's Jesus because his face shineth and he's got a halo over his head like in all those pictures. No. It says if you saw Jesus, he didn't look like anybody different than anybody else. He looks like just another Jew from Nazareth or fisherman. Whatever they look like. Kind of grungy and smelling like fish. So he didn't look any different. He looked like a human because he was 100% human. He got tired. He got hungry. He needed sleep. He wept. He had emotions just like we do. There were human weaknesses that he had because he was 100% human, yet he did not sin. He did not have a sin nature. He was sinless but 100% human. And he needed to be a human to be our perfect substitute for us. So that's the wisdom of God, that the perfect substitute for sinful humanity had to be the God-man, 100% God to forgive sin and also 100% human to be the perfect substitute for us as humans. And that is exactly what Jesus was, the second Adam The Bible calls him. So what was the nature of this coming Messiah? He was a descendant of Eve. He was going to be part of the human race. The God-man. Let's go on to number three. After the enemy of the coming Messiah, which was the devil, and the nature of the coming Messiah being that he was the God-man, number three, what was the goal of this coming Messiah in Genesis 3.15? Well, I delineated several reasons earlier at the beginning of why did Jesus come into the world? Why was he born? to seek and to save sinners, to glorify God, to reveal the truth, to reveal what God is like. Talked about all those. To fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Well, here's another one. The goal of the coming Messiah was to crush Satan. To crush Satan, the devil. That's 315. I will put hostility, Satan, between you, the devil, and the woman Eve, and between your descendants and her descendants. Who are the descendants of Satan? It's a good question. Well, you have to search the rest of the Scriptures to find out. Who are the descendants of Satan? Who are the children of Satan? Who are the offspring of Satan? Who are the sons of daughters and Satan? Well, clearly, demons are the offspring of Satan. Revelation 12, many other passages say that. He's the prince of the power of the air. He rules over demons. But Scripture is also clear, Matthew 13 and many other places, John chapter 8, where it says that unbelievers are offspring of Satan. Unbelievers are offspring of Satan. In the Gospels, Jesus referred to the religious hypocrites as the offspring of Satan. Primarily, it's kind of interesting if, if you note Jesus' uh, condemnation, that phrase where he says, you are of your father the devil. He said it a few times. And it's interesting to note that Jesus, when he said, you are of 
your father the devil, or you are of the devil. He always said it to the religious hypocrites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's interesting that I couldn't find. Jesus never said, you are of your father the devil to like the gross, explicit sinners, like the drunkards and the prostitutes that actually he had lunch and dinner with. But when he verbalized it, (laughs) he always reserved it for these religious hypocrites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Scripture is also clear that Anybody who's not a believer is a child or a daughter of the devil. 2 Corinthians 6 and many other places. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2 as well. But the goal of this coming Messiah would be to crush the work of Satan. And that's the middle of verse 15. This Messiah, this he, he shall bruise or literally crush your head, Satan. And that is how you kill a snake. Jesus came to kill the snake. He came to kill the serpent with his perfect life, with his death, with his, with his resurrection and his ongoing work to kill Satan. Satan is not totally dead right now. He's flop, he, His head got crushed and he's flopping all over like snakes will do. And he's doing damage with his tail, whipping all over the place. Among other things, he's still alive and well, but his death is sure and it will be entire in the future. But his goal was to crush Satan destroy. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, to look at this very interesting verse. And then if you can put your finger in Hebrews chapter 2, in light of this truth, the New Testament giving us more detail of this purpose of Genesis 3.15, that the Messiah would crush the head of Satan, that he would kill Satan. By the way, this is another answer to that question. Why was Jesus born? Why did he come into the earth? And why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, one of those answers that we haven't said yet is 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Look at it. Why did Jesus come into the world? Uh, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who has a regular ongoing pattern of life bent towards sin is of the devil. They are not believers. They aren't Christians. So, Before I got saved at age 19, I was a child of the devil. That's how I lived my life. I didn't know I was a child of the devil, but I was. So anyone who practices sin, lives in sin on a regular, ongoing basis in terms of their identity and who they are and their walk of life, they are of the devil. And then it says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's what he does. The Son of God has appeared. See, this is why Jesus was born. Jesus came into the world at Christmas. The Son of God, Jesus, appeared for the following purpose. What? To destroy the works of the devil. There's a purpose statement of why we celebrate Christmas. Yippee! That's what we're going to do today when we get home. We're going to celebrate Christmas, and we are going to celebrate that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And I'm going to have extra eggnog just for that. Take that, Satan. Uh, now go to Hebrews, uh, a parallel verse that gives us a little more detail. So Jesus came and was born to destroy the works of the devil. Then the question would be, well, what are the works of the devil? That's a good question. Then look at Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise, also partook of flesh and blood. God came down in the world, took on a human body as the God-man, in order that for the purpose of, through his death on the cross, which accomplishes a purpose, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Why did Jesus come into the world? So that he might die, so that he might destroy the work of Satan and remove Satan's power, which is death. What are the works of the devil? Well, tempting people to sin and getting people to sin and also causing people to die. And Jesus came to conquer death and he came to conquer sin 
which are the byproducts of the works of Satan. So that was the goal of the coming Messiah. He came to crush Satan's head and destroy the works of the devil. Look at Romans 16. There are a few modern scholars who have come along in the like 18 and 1900s who didn't believe in miracles and started questioning the authority of Scripture, mostly in Europe, mostly at the high academic levels in the prestigious seminaries and institutions. And they began teaching weird stuff that wasn't historically taught or ever believed or ever imagined by anybody since Moses penned Genesis 3.15 and other passages. Or they began to question the face value teaching of Scripture that had been held to and preserved and propagated and taught for literally 3,200 years. And then some skeptics came along thinking they know the Bible better than we do and they started questioning the validity of Scripture and denying miracles and saying that Genesis isn't history and it's all mythology and it's all fable and it's just trying to teach us a spiritual religious lesson. This is new stuff, people. No one ever thought this way till after the Enlightenment, the Renaissance. People who denied miracles began trying to interpret the Bible without the Spirit of God. And they came to wrong conclusions and unfortunately it trickled down in from these liberal, liberal seminaries into the pews of the churches and was, over time, embraced by normal Christians, sadly. And one of the consequences is there are people who say, and even so-called Christians who say, well, Genesis 3.15 has nothing to do with Jesus. It doesn't refer to him. It's not a messianic prophecy. That's just reading into it, and that's, that's just wrong. That's sad. That's undermining one of the greatest promises that God ever made in Scripture, and they deny this. But that's why then in Romans 16, um, you've got... A reference by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul believed that Genesis 3.15 referred to Jesus and the Messiah. And he believed that the serpent referred to Satan himself. And that's why in Romans 16.20 it says, The God of peace, talking to Christians, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That terminology is taken directly from Genesis 3.15. Which confirms the Apostle Paul believed in a literal Genesis 3.15 interpretation. As did the Apostle John. So you can trust in the face value meaning of your scripture. Jesus was going to be born and crush the work of Satan. Jesus was going to provide a way that we can overcome sin in our life and even overcome the greatest enemy, which is death. So that if you're a believer and you're a Christian and the time when it comes for you to de depart and leave this world and go on into the next life, the moment you stop breathing your last in this life, you will wake up and breathe your first directly in heaven in the presence of God. All of your sins forgiven. You've overcome Satan, the death, uh, the grave, hell, into the presence of God, and that's all because of the work of Jesus Christ who paved the way through His death and resurrection and His perfect life on behalf of sinners. This coming Messiah came to crush the horrible work of Satan. Let's go on to number four. Why was Jesus born? Why did He come into the world? What's the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 about? Well, the work of the coming Messiah. It's death for sin. Why was Jesus born? He came to die. Why was Jesus? He came to die. He was born to die. What an irony. He was born to die. He had to die. That was his purpose. It, his death wasn't a surprise. He wasn't a helpless victim. It wasn't plan C or D. Jesus knew he was going to die. Jesus planned his own death. Jesus orchestrated his own death and eternity passed. It's amazing. Because that's why he came. And that's Genesis 
refers to the death of the Messiah. We already talked about it where God is talking to Satan and says there's going to be an offspring of Eve. Is he going to be a man? He's going to be a real man. He's going to come from the loins of this woman, one of her descendants, and he's going to be a he and he shall bruise you on the head. He's going to crush your head, Satan, and Satan is going to be allowed to bruise this Messiah on the heel. This Messiah is going to be struck. He's going to be poisoned. He's going to be hurt. He's going to be killed. He's going to die. That is a reference to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to die. And He came to die for sinners that they might have eternal life. Let's go to... I just want to look at a couple of basic reminders in your New Testament regarding the fact that Jesus died. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Some of you probably have this memorized. The fact that the Messiah had to die. He came to die. The Apostle Paul says that for the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. In other words, anybody who commits sin deserves to die and actually will die. Every single one of us. Because God said in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, that every soul is mine. I created every human being. I created every soul in my image. They belong to me. I own them. I am a holy God. I can't tolerate sin. I must punish sin. I must punish it with death. So any soul that sins, it must die. Ezekiel 18, 4. That's the bad news. And that's Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But, I love that but, good news. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And it only comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is only hope beyond the grave through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who He is, His work, what He did, His glorious gospel, His atoning death, His willing, atoning, planned death on the cross as He was dying where He absorbed the wrath of a holy God the Father on Himself. For every sinner who would believe that he died as their substitute. And then he died. He was buried. He rose himself victoriously from the grave three days later. He ascended into heaven. He reigns on high as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will come again someday to rule over this earth, the entire universe. Everything is happening according to his glorious plan. And it is a glorious plan because he's a gracious Forgiving God for the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. First Corinthians 15, three says Jesus died for sins. That's the gospel. He died for you. Do you believe that? Second Corinthians 521 says that he was punished by God, the father, and that our wickedness was put on him and his righteousness was imputed to us. That's the divine, amazing exchange. So that when God the Father looks down on a Christian, he doesn't see yucky sin. He sees the holiness of Christ on that person because he poured all the yuckiness of sin on Christ the day that he crucified and killed and punished Christ. And he became our substitute. What a glorious truth. The work of the coming Messiah would be death for sin. He came to die. Let's go ahead and close by looking at this wonderful prophecy in Isaiah. Go ahead and Isaiah 53, kind of near and towards the center of your Bible there. So in Isaiah 53, prophecy made about 700 years before Jesus was born. It's the most detailed account of how the Messiah would suffer for sinners. Jesus was born to die. He came to die. That was his mission. That was his purpose. He had to die for sin. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And then in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, it says this, but he, that's the Messiah, it's talking about it as though it's already happened, present tense, because in the mind of God, who is an infinite being, 
He knows everything. He knows the future. And so prophetically, he says in verse 5, but he, the Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. That's referring to the cross. He was crushed for our iniquity. So he's dying for sinners. He's dying as a substitute. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. The wrath that God should have poured out on me as a sinner actually got poured out on Jesus on the cross. And then by Jesus' scourging, by his death on the cross, we are healed. And that's talking about getting healed spiritually, forgiven of sin. And so the terminology uh, in the New King James is beautiful because it reflects the reality of Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53.5, when it says, He, the Messiah, was bruised for our iniquities. Because in Genesis 3, God predicted that the Messiah would be bruised by Satan on the cross. So what is Christmas all about? It's about the birth of Jesus and why He came into this world and all those wonderful truths, including that Jesus came into this world to crush the work of Satan, to crush the work of sin, and to overcome Satan's most powerful weapon, death and separation from God itself. And if you know Jesus Christ personally, and if you have admitted that you are a sinner, and you have gone to uh, the holy God and creator of the universe and confessed your sin and asked him to save you because of your belief in Jesus Christ, the God-man, that he was sinless, that he died on the cross for you as your substitute, absorbed the Father's wrath, and you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead and reigns on high and is the only way to heaven and that only He can save, we cannot save ourselves. And you cry out to Him and say, God, save me. Save me from my sin. Make me one of Your own. Adopt me into Your family. Forgive me all of, all of my sin. God is going to answer that prayer the very moment you pray it. And you will be born again instantaneously. You will be adopted into the family of God. You'll be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious Son instantaneously. And by the way, that will be your spiritual birthday and your first spiritual birthday present, I don't know if you realize this, is the gift from God Himself and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit who literally lives in you as a Christian. Isn't that amazing? The greatest Christmas present you will ever receive. And the Holy Spirit is with you wherever you go all of your days on this earth until you die and go to be with God in heaven. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He could only say that if he left his literal presence in the believer. And he's done that through the Holy Spirit of God. Boy, that sounds like something to celebrate over Christmas. With that, let's go ahead and pray and we'll go to lunch. Father, thank you for this day and our time together again to be with the body of Christ. Thank you for the great reminder from Scripture of the simple question, why was Jesus born? Why did He come into the world? And you've given us clear answers. Jesus came as your blessed Son, our blessed Savior, to conquer death and sin on our behalf. God, may we celebrate that and rejoice and exalt your name all throughout the Christmas season because of it and also Share that blessed news with others who haven't received it yet. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.